Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will continue our deep dive into the world of torts in sports as we give you part two of our breakdown of facility liability. Beginning with a quick reminder of the duties facility owners and operators owe invitees and licensees, we will then move to break down numerous real-world situations in which fans were injured at a sporting event and sued the stadium, facility, and or owner to recover damages. We will pay particular attention to baseball, hockey, and golf before ending with a general summation of the liability sport teams and facility owners face when objects or players leave the playing surface and enter into the stands. So, if you ever wondered what parts of a baseball stadium need to be covered by protective netting, or if a spectator at the Masters could sue Augusta National for being hit by an errant drive, then this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. In a previous episode, we talked about a number of key terms, a number of key aspects in defining the negligence or potential negligence of an individual who owns a facility or operates a facility. We defined individuals like licensees and invitees and talked about how they were different, not only in definition, but also in the duties that are owed to them, citing specifically that invitees or individuals who receive a personal or impersonal invitation to come and use a facility are owed a duty by the facility owner of protection from known risks or hazards. Whereas a licensee, an individual who has permission to come onto a piece of property, is only owed the duty to be warned of those risks or hazards. We also talked about the different types of defects that might be seen or might occur on a property or within a facility, talking about patent versus latent defects. And then we also talked about the idea of the duties, the four specific duties that encompass the main duty, which is this duty of reasonable care, stating specifically that a facility owner or possessor or operator has to inspect the premise to discover any type of hidden or obvious dangers. Once they uncover those dangers, they have a duty to keep the premise in safe repair, fixing or removing them altogether from the facility. We also said that they have a duty to anticipate the foreseeable use of the facility and then take reasonable precautions to protect invitees from the hazards. We talked about all that in depth, and if you haven't listened, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast so that way you can be caught up and really understand the important characteristics of stadium and facility liability. Today, what I want to do, though, is I want to move that conversation forward. And instead of just talking about these concepts and providing definitions and examples that are very general, I want to focus on very specific application of the legal elements and principles of facility liability and negligence. The best way to do that is to go through and dissect case law. 
Remember, case law is the application of the law to actual cases that have been filed through the court system. With case law, what we do is we look at how the judge is interpreting these key legal elements of duty, breach, causation, and damages within facility negligence to determine how the future courts might apply the same constructs going forward. The idea being, if we as sport managers understand how courts interpret these key principles, we can take steps to prevent lawsuits from individuals coming on and using our facility. And that's where we want to go with the rest of the conversation, looking at specific facilities or specific properties in sport and recreation because the duties that we have to repair, to inspect, to remove hazards, all deal with how that facility is used and what can be expected by an individual entering into that facility or entering onto that property. So when we're looking at negligence and liability of the owner or possessor of facility, we have to consider that facility being used. And today, that's exactly what we're going to dive into here. We're going to look at some specific facilities within recreation and sports and tackle case law, which has established the legal duties that are required from the owner or possessor of that facility towards the people coming in and entering that facility and using it. And where I want to start with is a little bit different than maybe where we've started in the past. I want to start by looking at an example from the world of recreation. Because this is a really unique example, but it actually has a lot of spillover into the field of sport as well. And this is a case called Grant versus Wakata Campgrounds, LLC. It was heard back in 2009 in the U.S. District Court. Now, this is an important fact because this means that this is a federal court case where there is legal precedent established that applies not only to the state, New Hampshire, but throughout the entire country. So this is a really important legal precedent that's established. There are two campers in this case, the Grants, a husband and wife. They were the plaintiffs. The Wakata campgrounds were the defendants. The Grants sued for negligence, and Wakata won a summary judgment. Let me stop here for one second. A summary judgment is a pretrial motion that is asked for, and it can be asked for by either side. But in this case, Wakata asked for a summary judgment. In a summary judgment, what the judge is doing is they're looking at the facts of the case and they are looking at those facts in the way that is the most favorable for the other side. So in this case, they're looking at it in the way that is most favorable to the grants. And they're saying, if we consider these in the most possibly favorable way to you, could you win the lawsuit? If the answer is yes, we think if these are viewed in the most favorable way, you could win, then the summary judgment will not be granted. If the answer is no, then what the court's saying is, even under the best circumstances, you're still not going to win this, then they will issue a summary judgment. And so that's what happened here. The court ruled that Wakata was not negligent. Therefore, even if we view everything in the best light for the grants, they still wouldn't win. So a summary judgment was granted. Let's look now at what actually happened to lead to this going to court in the first place. We have the Grants, as I said, a husband and wife, who have had a lot of experience camping. They've actually camped at Wakata Campground before, so they know the area, and they know the property, and, and they know what camping there entails. On August 20th, 2004, they go to Wakata Campground, and they check in at 8 p.m. Their goal is to stay overnight. They bring with them what's known as a pop-up camper. Pop-up camper is just a trailer on the back of a car that when you park it, it flips up, 
and you have a nice little camping area where you can sleep, a little kitchen. So they have this camper and they check in at 8 p.m. and they drive it into this area known as the Pines. They call this camping in the Pines where you're actually setting your camper up right in the woods next to all these trees. So after they get it set up, around nine o'clock, a thunderstorm hits without warning. This is important because the Grants had actually listened to the weather report earlier that day to see if it was going to be weather that was amenable to camping. And the weather report said that it was going to be grayed out. In fact, that whole day, the weather was perfect. So this 9 p.m. thunderstorm pops up pretty much without warning. No one at the campground was monitoring the weather. No employees. And in fact, they didn't even have an employee designated to watch weather, and they never had. So this really comes without warning to everyone who works there and who's camping there. And it's not just a thunderstorm. This thunderstorm is so bad it has high winds. There's hail. And the wind gets up to a certain point where it's gusting and actually snaps off the top of one of those pine trees, which then falls on top of the pop-up camper of the Grants, crushing part of the Grants camper and pinning them into it, causing pretty severe injuries. Like oftentimes happens in America. What do the Grants do? They sue. They claim that the Wakata campgrounds were negligent in their property ownership. Now, the first court disagreed with that. The first court said that they weren't, that they actually didn't breach any of their duties, but the Grants thought that the judge inaccurately interpreted those duties. So they move to appeal the case, and they raise three questions. The first question that they raise is, did the defendants, did the Wakata campgrounds, exercise due care in keeping the property safe to invitees? Were the customers, in other words, exposed to unnecessary and unreasonable danger? They also ask, did the defendants breach its duty to warn the invitees of the approaching weather? And finally, did the defendants breach their duty and expose the campers to unnecessary and unreasonable danger by not closing the park? And the grants in this appeal are arguing that those three questions were misinterpreted by the first court that heard the case. The issue then falls to the judge to make a determination as to whether the first court accurately or inaccurately interpreted each of these important issues. The judge began by taking the first question. Did the defendants exercise due care in keeping the property safe to invitees? And to do that, they have to go back and examine that idea and that duty that the Wakata campground has. They have a duty to keep the premise in safe repair, inspect the premise, and discover any type of known or hidden dangers. Once they find a danger, they have a duty to remove that danger or to fix it. And in examining whether they actually did this, the court looked at, well, what do you normally do to upkeep the park, to inspect it? And what they found is that the campground actually regularly inspected their trees. And when they found that there were dead limbs on a tree, which makes it more susceptible to snapping off the tree and falling and injuring someone, they found Wakeda actually limbed those trees. Or they just took the tree down altogether. They found that when there were diseased trees, they would go through and limb those as well or take those down. And that this was a regular occurrence at the campground. To claim that they did not keep the premise in safe repair, the judge ruled was just false because they had documentation that they actually had kept the facility in good repair, commonly went through and inspected the facility and removed the dangers when they found them. So the judge ruled to that first question that the trial court was right. There was no breach in the duty to repair and remove any known hazards. To the second question though, did the defendants breach its duty to warn invitees of approaching weather? This one was a little bit harder for the judge to come to a conclusion on. 
And as so often is the case in appeals, what the judge will do is they'll not only hear the argument from both the Grants and Wakata Campground, they'll also go and they'll look at past what we call case law, other decisions that have been filed in other courts. And in doing that, this judge noted specifically that there were no cases dealing with this situation on campgrounds. He did find some cases where there were issues of weather coming in and the property owner warned of that weather. Primarily, he pointed to golf courses, where golf courses have an individual whose job it is to monitor the weather. And if bad weather comes in, let's say a thunderstorm just like this, the risk of lightning hitting a golfer who's holding a metal club is pretty high. And so they will send a warning. Normally, it's a couple of horn sounds, which signify to the golfers it is unsafe and you need to come in right now. The judge did find that there were places that did that, and he noted that if you have someone monitoring the weather, you do have a duty to warn people if the weather is bad. However, when we were talking about the facts of this case, I noted, well, Kata didn't have anyone monitoring the weather. They didn't have anyone monitoring, which means they didn't know the weather was coming, so they couldn't warn. So the question shifts a little bit to, well, should they had someone monitoring the weather? And this is where the judge went and looked at, well, what are the industry standards? What do campgrounds normally do? And he said this, after substantial research has failed to discover a single case imposing such a duty on campgrounds, I found that New Hampshire law would not expand the duty of care to the defendant is owed to keep its campground reasonably safe to include constantly monitoring of and warning about the weather. In other words, the defendant's duty of care is limited to keeping the property reasonably safe from the risks of danger that are known. Because monitoring the weather would not necessarily provide the defendant with either constructive or actual notice of the dangerous conditions on his property, there is no basis to impose a duty to monitor the weather as part of the duty to keep the property safe. The injury that occurred here is simply too attenuated to be a foreseeable risk of the defendants failing to monitor the weather. In other words, even if we had someone monitoring the weather, we wouldn't know that that top of the tree is going to snap off and that that could cause harm to the people in that campground under it. The top of the tree could snap off and go the other way, or a weather could come in and no top would be broken off. So what the judge is saying is there's no industry standard saying that you have to watch the weather. And even if you did watch the weather, that's not to say that it would have stopped this injury from occurring. There would be what we would say is no causation. The final thing that's taken into consideration here by the judge is one of the very first facts that I gave. It's the fact that the Grants are experienced campers. And he acknowledges that not only have they camped elsewhere around the country, but they've camped here before. Meaning, they know the risks that are associated with camping. One of the risks of camping is the potential for bad weather to come in. Whether that is a thunderstorm or a tornado or something else entirely, you know those are risks that you're taking when you go to a campground. And so he said that by going to the campground and having experience in camping, the campers, the grants, assumed the risk that something like this could happen. In the end, the judge ruled that the campground did not breach any of its duties. They have a duty to inspect and repair any dangerous conditions. They had done that. And he said they did not have a duty to warn about the weather because there's no industry standard that says that they had to and they had not employed someone specifically to do that. So he ruled that the summary judgment was properly granted. This case oftentimes is talked about in a recreation and sport law class 
And those individuals who are interested in sport will say, well, what does it have to do with us? Well, this is a great case of what the limits are on the duties that are owed by a facility owner or operator. As I said, within golf, we actually do have standards that stipulate that individuals do need to monitor the weather. And that's pointed out in this lawsuit. It also applies to other stadiums. Think about throughout the Midwest in the season or in the fall. That's tornado season. We have college football games, 100,000 people sitting in stadiums. The question would then be, well, what duty do we have to protect those people from the weather, especially 100,000? And so stadiums and facilities, even if they're not parks, need to take this ruling into consideration to know what systems they legally have to have in place and don't. And if they have a system in place, this provides them with an avenue to understand what the limits on that system might be. One of those sports that oftentimes is at risk from the weather is the sport of baseball. And that's where a lot of our premise and liability case law actually comes from here in the United States, because baseball is America's pastime. It's been played in stadiums since the late 1800s, early 1900s. And baseball, because it's our national pastime, oftentimes in terms of the law, it's treated very different. For example, it has an antitrust exemption based off of a very old archaic ruling by the Supreme Court. Well, when we're dealing with the liability of facility owners, baseball is also different, and the courts have treated it different at times, leading to something called the limited duty rule. When we're talking about baseball, or we're talking about any sport, not only do we have the risk of the weather, like we saw with the campground case, we also have the risk of the things that are happening within the facility spilling over into the stands. Think about an NBA game, for example. You see once, twice, 10 times a season, players jumping into the stands to try to save a ball. As they're jumping into the stands, there's a question of, is the facility liable for them landing on someone else? There's examples of Shaquille O'Neal trying to jump into the stands as a seven foot human being weighs 300 pounds landing on people that can cause serious injury. The point is when we're dealing with stadium liability and we're talking about sports, one of the most often court cases we will see is when an object or a person leaves the playing field and propels themselves or the object into the stands. And then that object causes some type of injury. The question we'll tackle here is what is the exact liability? What is the exact duty that that facility owes to those fans within the sport of baseball? And as I said, one of the most historic cases that first starts to really examine this question is a case called Crane versus Kansas City Baseball and Exhibition Co. This and the next case, which is Wells, are two pretty old cases. They both are from the same year, 1913. In this case, this was heard in the Kansas City Court of Appeals, so we're dealing with a state lawsuit. The plaintiff in this case is Crane, the defendant is Kansas City Baseball. Now, Crane initially sues Kansas City Baseball for negligence. The argument that the defense makes is this idea of assumption of risk, something that we just heard about with the Grant case. Initially, the defendant won, so initially the court ruled for Kansas City Baseball, but Crane is appealing it. With that said, let's dive into the facts that led to this going to court in the first place. This court begins, or this case begins, just as the next one does, by first talking about the stadium. Baseball, as is talked about in this court case, is America's pastime. And as America's pastime, there's certain things that are known when you go to a baseball stadium. And the judge takes time to point this out in his ruling. The first thing he says is that foul balls are common within baseball. For those of you who might not be super familiar with baseball, a foul ball is when a ball that is hit off the bat 
goes outside of the field of play. The field of play is defined by a straight line between home plate and first base and home base and third base. So what we get is this angle that extends all the way out to the outfield to the wall. Anything outside of that angle is considered foul territory. Well, one of the things that's outside that angle are the fans and the bleachers. When you go to a baseball game, you will see 10 to 20 foul balls a game, balls that are not hit between those baselines that are hit outside those baselines, which will often go into the stands. And in fact, the court even goes as far to point out that catching a baseball is an American pastime too. Going to a game with your glove to try to catch a foul ball, to have a souvenir to take home with you is just as much as part of the game as anything else. The defendants in this case, Kansas City Baseball and Exhibition Company, they are the owners of a baseball stadium that puts on baseball games and exhibitions. Within this stadium, there is protective netting. Netting that is not on the playing field, but behind the playing field in this foul territory. From halfway down the first baseline, wrapping all the way behind home plate to halfway down the third baseline. Well, Why is there that netting there? Well, foul balls, as they go in certain directions, come at you with more velocity, meaning there's a greater risk that that foul ball could cause injury. For example, if you're sitting right behind home and a pitcher throws a ball 90 miles an hour right at the batter and he swings and just hits the bottom of it, fouling it backwards, that ball is still coming with quite a bit of velocity, probably still coming at upwards of 80, 90, maybe even at times 100 miles an hour. Well, if that ball were to strike you, let's say in your face, there's a good chance that it's going to break a part of your face. And in fact, we've seen that over and over and over again, where a foul ball hits someone and breaks an eye socket, a nose breaks a different bone. To protect the invitees to fulfill their duty, stadiums will set up netting in those areas which they think the individuals are at most serious risk of being harmed. Kansas City Baseball set up that netting from halfway down first to halfway down third, all the way behind home plate as well. That's the stadium setup. The plaintiff in this case, Crane, comes to the game and actually buys a ticket. Now, why is it important that they buy a ticket, that he buys a ticket? Because the act of buying a ticket means that he's an invitee. Being an invitee, Kansas City Baseball has a duty to protect him. That's going to be important later on. The other important part is not only does Crane buy a ticket, but Crane chooses the area in which he is sitting. He chose to sit in an area that was not covered by the net. And he chose to sit there when there actually were still seats available in the area that was covered by the net. So it was his choice of where to sit, and he purposely chose not to sit in an area covered by the net. As I'm sure you can foresee happening, as he's sitting in that area, a foul ball is hit during the game, comes into contact with him, and injures him. So he brings a lawsuit, and he sues claiming negligence. He claims Kansas City Baseball breached their duty to protect him from known risk. And he goes on to define that even more by saying the reason he's claiming that they breached that is because the defendant, Kansas City Baseball, did not have the entire stadium screened in. His argument is they have a duty to protect everyone in the stadium. The only way to adequately do that is to screen in the entire stadium. But after we get his argument and after we get the defense, we then get into the part that really matters. What does the court say? How do they rule on this? And in the ruling, the judge says a lot. But one of the most important things that he says is, quote, 
Baseball is our national pastime, and the rules governing it, and the manner in which it is played, and the risk and dangers here too are matters of common knowledge. In other words, because baseball is part of America, everyone knows the rules to it. Everyone knows that foul balls occur during the game. And because it's common knowledge, if I go to a game and I'm American, the judge is saying, I know of the risk that's associated with sitting in the fans. He's saying Crane had knowledge of the game. He was familiar with the risks of being a fan. He was familiar with the dangers in where he purchased his seat. And as a result of that familiarity, he is assuming the risk of the activity. Just like we've talked about with participant-participant liability. If I'm playing football and I get tackled and I break my arm from a legal tackle, I can't win a lawsuit claiming that the defendant breached their duty and injured me. Because being tackled is part of the game. It's an inherent risk of the activity. And by choosing to partake in the activity, I'm assuming that risk. The judge is saying the same thing is true for being a fan of baseball. If you are American, you go to a baseball game, you know the risk because baseball is America's pastime. He goes on to say that the defendant has this duty to provide reasonable care. And he says, we think the duty of the defendants towards the patrons included that of providing seats protected by screening from wildly thrown or foul balls for the use of patrons who desired such protection. He's saying the duty is to make sure an area of the facility is protected from foul balls or balls that are thrown wildly towards the stands. As long as you are providing seating that is protected, he's saying that you are fulfilling your duty. If an individual wants to choose to sit in an area that's not protected, then that's on them. Or as the judge says, Crane voluntarily chose an unprotected seat and thereby assumed the ordinary risk of the position. And he should not be allowed to recover since his own contributory negligence is apparent and indisputable. In other words, he contributed to the injury because he's the one that chose the ticket. So he is contributing to the act. All of this to say, the court of affirmed the trial court's decision. They affirmed the court's decision that Kansas City was not liable. Very similarly, in 1913, we see another lawsuit filed against a baseball team. This one was Wells versus Minneapolis Baseball and Athletic Association. This is another state case. This is in the state court uh, of Minnesota. It actually gets all the way up to the Supreme Court of Minnesota. Here, the plaintiff is an individual named Wells. The defendant is Minneapolis Baseball and Athletic Company. And originally, Wells sues for negligence. And with this case, the initial decision is issued for Wells. So the case is appealed. Let's get to the things that happened before we get to the interpretation. A lot of these facts you're going to hear with Wells are identical to Crane. The judge talks about the fact that Wells was a paying customer, that he had bought in a ticket. He notes that in paying to come in, that he is an invitee. As an invitee, as we said, the duty is to protect invitees from known risks. The judge in this case goes on to spend a lot of time describing the facility. But the important part for our conversations is where Wells was sitting. Wells was sitting about 65 feet from home plate and 10 feet to the side of the protected screen. So imagine that protected screen going down the first baseline towards home plate, wrapping around behind home plate and going down the third baseline as well, stopping at a halfway down first base and third base, just as with the crane suit. Wells was sitting 10 feet past where that netting was. 
just like with Grant, Wells selected the seat for herself. There were, just like with Crane, there were seats available in the protected area behind the screen, but she chose not to sit in those seats, but rather to sit 10 feet outside of that protected area. Again, as you can imagine, Wells was attending this game where she bought a ticket and she was struck by a foul ball. And it was struck her in the collarbone with such force that it actually broke her collarbone. It's important to note, and the judge points this out, the ball that struck her curved around the screen. It didn't go through the screen. There was no defect in the screen, in other words. So what does she do? Well, she brings lawsuit, arguing that the netting was insufficient to protect her. This is the same thing that Crane is saying. There should have been more netting available so I could be protected. What does the defense argue? The exact same thing that Kansas City baseball argued. They say the injury was accidental and that you bought the ticket, so you assume the risk of sitting in that area. And the judge again agrees, and he offers this great quote, which is used a lot in discussions of limited liability or the limited duty rule in baseball. And he says, quote, baseball is not free from danger to those who witness the game, but the perils are not so imminent that due care on the part of the management requires that all spectators be in a screened in area. In fact, a large part of those who attend prefer to sit where no screens obscure their view. The defendant had a right to cater to their desires. We believe that as to all who, with full knowledge of the danger of thrown or batted balls, attend a baseball game, the management cannot be held negligent when it provides a choice between a screened in and an open seat. The screen being reasonably sufficient as to extend and substance. The judge is saying that just as there are fans who want to be in a protected area, there's fans who don't want to be sitting behind a net. And it's perfectly legal for the stadium to make sure that both types of seats are available so that both sets of fans can be appeased. As long as there is sufficient net to protect those areas that are most dangerous. As long as you do that, you're fulfilling your duty to protect your fans. So they upheld the duty. They went against Wells. They said there wasn't insufficient screening. In fact, the screening was perfectly fine. And in issuing that decision, they end up reversing and remanding the initial court's ruling. The really important part we get out of that is defining this duty that baseball stadiums have. The duty of the defendants towards the patrons includes providing seats protected by screening from wildly thrown or foul balls for the use of patrons who desire it. If you choose not to send that area, that's on you. Now you've assumed that risk. So what's the limited duty rule then? Well, the limited duty rule applies to baseball. States that you must provide screen protection for the most dangerous part of the grandstands and for those who may be reasonably anticipated to desire that protected seating. And the courts all the way back from 1913, all the way through this Yates versus Chicago National League Ball Club 1992, have continuously upheld that ruling. But baseball isn't the only sport where we see an object leave the field and cause injury. In fact, it might not even be the most dangerous sport because we have this sport of hockey. And in hockey, if we go back 20 years, there was even less protective netting or, or protected area provided to fans. And notice I said that baseball is oftentimes treated different. Hockey is a much younger sport. And first and foremost, it's not America's pastime. 
So the argument that it's America's pastime, therefore everyone should know the rules, doesn't fly in the courts. We don't ever see a judge mentioning that in their decision. So the question then becomes, what about hockey? How do we deal with the hockey in pucks leaving the ice or the rink and potentially hitting players? Is the facility or possessor of the facility, are they liable if that occurs? Well, let's look at a couple of court cases to assess that question. The first one is Gilcrest versus City of Troy. This is a case from 1986, and it was a case in the state of New York, and it got all the way up to the New York Court of Appeals. Gilchrist, just like with the baseball lawsuits we saw with Crane, we saw with Wells, Gilchrist sues for negligence. The trial initially actually rules for Gilchrist. The appellant court then overturned it, and they ruled for the city of Troy. So Gilchrist appeals it again. Let's look at the facts that actually lead this going to court to determine whether the trial court or the appellate court was correct. This all starts at an ice rink. The ice rink, which is just a sheet of ice where individuals play hockey, is enclosed by boards. These are wooden structures, sometimes plastic structures, that extend upwards three and a half feet and have a three-foot section of plexiglass seated above it. So the idea is the boards keep the puck when it's on the ice inside the playing area. We then put some plexiglass on top of those boards to protect if there is a deflection and the puck goes in the air or to protect in professional hockey from checking. When a professional hockey player checks another player, they check him into the boards versus actually checking them into the stands. Without that plexiglass, either the puck or them could fall over into the stands and cause injury. So in this particular ice rink in the city of Troy, there were three and a half foot tall boards, and then they had a three foot section of plexiglass above the boards. More specifically, the court said, quote, the rink was enclosed with a dasher board three and one half feet high with a three foot section of plexiglass mounted above the boards at both ends of the rink. The plexiglass extended from the blue line on one side around the end of the rink behind the goals to the blue line on the other side. There was no plexiglass on the sides on the rinks between the blue lines. Movable bleachers were located in this unprotected area on one side of the rink. And it goes on from there. So just like in baseball, where we have an area behind home plate down the foul lines protected by netting, in this hockey rink, we have an area from the blue line around the back of the goal to the other blue line that's enclosed by not only the board, which encloses the whole rink, but also that three and a half foot high plexiglass. But there now be creates an area between the blue line and blue line where we have about 20 feet where there is no plexiglass. That is how this facility was set up in the current case. Gilchrist is a father, and he's at the game with his son. So Gilchrist's nine-year-old son is with him at the game when he was struck in the face with a puck while standing along the dasher boards in the area where there was no plexiglass. The son and the family had attended multiple games in the past. Why do we bring that up? Because just like with baseball, the act of attending the games or just like with the grants, the act of going to the camp means that you know of the risks of going and doing that activity. So obviously, what's he do? He and the family, the Gilcrest, sue for negligence. They ask the question specifically, does the limited duty rule of baseball apply to hockey? In other words, they're looking at what duty is owed by the facility owner and operator to the fans that are there. 
And in doing so, the court starts by first analyzing the question, are hockey and baseball similar? This court, the New York Court of Appeals, actually does agree that hockey and baseball are very similar. And since they're so similar, they agree that the duty is the same, to protect the most dangerous areas of the stadium and to provide enough seating in those areas for the fans who want to be protected. But we don't stop a lawsuit by just establishing that there's a duty. Remember, with a negligence lawsuit, you need a duty, a breach, causation, and damages. So the court not only looks at that first thing, they say, well, yes, a duty exists, but let's go on to see if there was a breach in causation. And in doing that, the judge says, because he was not sitting in the bleachers when the incident occurred, the plaintiff cannot contend that but for the negligent placement of the bleachers, the infant would not have been hit. So the judge is saying, yeah, baseball and hockey are the same. We can treat them very similarly. Very similar sports, objects leaving the field. The duty's the same. We got to protect fans in those most dangerous areas. We have to provide them seating in those areas. But in this case, the plaintiff, the nine-year-old boy, he wasn't hit by the puck when he was sitting in the bleachers. He was standing. He was standing in an area where there was no plexiglass. That area was not meant to be stood in by people. He was standing in it on his own volition. He was doing his own thing standing over there. And because he was standing over there when he wasn't supposed to be, there was no causation by the city of Troy. In other words, yeah, they had a duty to protect those areas that are most dangerous. And yet they breached that duty because they didn't protect that area. However, the breach of the duty didn't cause him to get hit. The fact that they didn't have screen up there wasn't the reason he got hit. He got hit because he was standing over there when he wasn't supposed to be standing over there. He's contributing to his own injuries. So if there's no causation, then there's no negligence. If he had been in a seat in that area, different story. He probably wins the lawsuit. But the key takeaway here is twofold. First, the court rules that baseball and hockey should be treated the same with this limited duty rule. They established that just like baseball has foul balls, pucks in hockey go into the stands quite a bit. And the duty is to protect those areas that are most dangerous for fans. In this case, the other important principle that I always focus on is the fact that there was no causation. And it just really highlights when we're looking at a negligent suit or any law. We don't just stop by first establishing one principle. We have to look at all the legal elements together and how they work together. It's not just, do we have a duty? It's, do we have a duty? Was it breached? And did it cause damages? And the court ruled here that it didn't. But just like with baseball, this isn't the only lawsuit that we've seen dealing with objects leaving the playing field. In fact, there's another fairly famous one, Pestalozzi versus the Philadelphia Flyers. This one, moving up four years, is a 1990s lawsuit. This one makes it all the way up into the Supreme Court, this time in Pennsylvania. And Pestalozzi initially sues, just like Gilchrist did, for negligence. The trial court granted a summary judgment for the Flyers. The Court of Appeals upheld the summary judgment. And so now we're all the way to the Supreme Court. And Pestalozzi is asking them for them to review this summary judgment, claiming that it was inappropriately applied. Before we get to what the court actually ruled, let's again focus on the facts of the case that led this to being tried in the first place. Just like with Gilchrist, Pestalozzi is attending a Flyers game. Pestalozzi bought a ticket 
to sit two rows behind the plexiglass. Again, the buying of the ticket means invitee, which establishes a duty to protect. We know from the 1986 lawsuit that that duty to protect means that you have to protect those areas which are most dangerous. So while Pesolozzi is sitting in this area, he is struck by a puck that was hit by Mario Lemieux and it deflected before it hit him. So the puck is hit by Lemieux, deflects, comes into contact with Pesolozzi, causing him injury. And the question that is being asked to be reviewed in this is what was the assumption of risk of Pestalozzi? Did he assume the risk of getting hit in the puck by attending the game and sitting in that area? And the judge stated in ruling on this that the omnipresent specter of a deflected Mario Lemieux missile whizzing towards spectators seated at center ice is as inherent to the sport of hockey as an unnerving probability of Von Hoyer's rocket flying towards patrons sitting in the first base seats at a baseball game. The team owed no duty to protect spectators from risks that are inherent to the sports, and the risk of being struck by a hockey puck, even for an individual sitting behind plexiglass, was common, frequent, and expected. So the court upheld the decision. They're saying, yes, you went to the game, and you owe a duty to be protected, but we can't say that you're blindly protected from anything. Just like with Grant, just like with Wells in the baseball cases, you chose your seat, as long as protected area is being supplied to you and you choose to sit somewhere else, then you are assuming the risk of the activity. Because as the judge so eloquently put it, it's a common knowledge thing for pucks to leave the stadium. Now, that's not really the end of the conversation when we're talking about hockey. Because really, up until the early 2000s, hockey stadiums were only equipped with that plexiglass surrounding the rink normally varying in height, three and a half to five feet, plus the baseboards, and those were the barriers of protection. If we fast forward to the early 2000s, there was an incident that occurred at a Columbus Blue Jackets game. And I just want to take a second to read you a news article that ran the next day in the Columbus Dispatch, the major newspaper in the city of Columbus. Quote, 13-year-old girl who was struck in the head by a puck during the Columbus Blue Jackets game Saturday night died Monday night of her injuries. Brittany Cecile was struck during the Blue Jackets game against the Calgary Flames at Nationwide Arena. The tragedy occurred during a season in which the NHL has pushed team and arena officials to increase their warning to fans lower areas of arenas. Fans are not allowed to enter those areas while the game is in progress. Ushers at an NHL game carry red signs with the words, Stop NHL Puck Policy. Cecile, who went to the game as a birthday present from her father, she would turn 14 today, was injured after the puck shot by Blue Jackets center Epspin Knutson deflected off a defenseman's stick and went over the protective glass. It struck another fan before hitting Cecile. She is believed to be the first fan to die after being struck by a puck at an NHL game. Frank Brown, NHL spokesperson, said Tuesday that he could not recall another fan death resulting from being hit by a puck at an NHL game. However, there have been other tragic accidents at minor league and amateur games. End quote. So, the question that I always ask, we talk about the legal precedent that's established in Gilcrest 
and Pestalozzi, that you have to protect those areas that are most dangerous. And up until then, I said, they didn't have any netting. They just had the protected glass. The question now becomes, after seeing this, after now knowing that there is a risk that you could suffer serious injury or be killed, does that change the case law? This incident never went to trial because as we see with a lot of instances that occur at stadiums, whether it be a fan being hit by a baseball, a puck, another object being thrown into the stands, etc., a lot of times when there's injuries, the teams want to settle this out of court because the press of the injury is already bad enough that they don't want to also be trying to defend themselves in court as a family is grieving the death, in this case, of their 14-year-old daughter. But this one incident, regardless of what the case law says, changed everything for a professional hockey. Now, the lower bowl, meaning the seats in the lower level, are all secure by a protective netting. The netting extends from the top of that plexiglass all the way up to the second row of fans. Why? Because after this incident, it's become very obvious that anywhere in that lower bowl, there is an extreme risk of injury. And the duty is to protect from those risks. And now that we know of those risks, we have to do something about it. Just as with baseball, with both Wells and Crane, just as they said, you have to at least provide some protected area. And then if they don't want to sit there, that's their call. The same is now true with hockey. You need to provide some protected area. And just merely having plexiglass now isn't enough. So that netting allows individuals to sit in that area to be protected from something that's well known to have occurred. If you don't want to sit there, that's fine. You can sit in a higher section where it is much less likely that you were to get hit by a puck. There's one other sport that has become very commonplace for individuals to be struck by an object that's leaving the playing field, and that's the sport of golf. And I want to reverse this a little bit by first starting by posing a couple questions to you and having you think through the application and how you think the law might rule before I give you a couple court cases which tell you what the case law says. So when we're dealing with golf, I want you to consider this. We don't have a stadium with golf. We have very little grandstands, oftentimes maybe none or very little bleachers. However, we do have instances where a fan might be struck by a golf ball. In an instance like that, if a fan is struck by a golf ball during the Masters, can the fan win a lawsuit against Augusta National, the owners of the land? Could they sue them for negligence and win the lawsuit? Well, let's think about it. If we're talking about negligence, we're talking about duty, breach, causation, and damages. First thing that we have to establish with duty is, is there a relationship present between the person who is hit by the ball and the defendant, in this case, Augusta National? Yes, the person who's hit by a ball would be considered an invitee. So there's an inherent relationship between the two of them. The fact that we have an inherent relationship means that there is a duty that exists as well. The question becomes, well, what is that duty? That's what we've been talking about. As an invitee, Augusta National has a duty to protect me from known risk. So that leads to the final question, is a golf ball being hit wayward, meaning far off of where it's supposed to go, into the crowd, is that a known risk? And if it is, what did Augusta National do to protect me from that risk? And also, is it a common known risk? Because if it's a common known risk, if it's an open and obvious danger, and I choose to go to the event anyways, have I now assumed the risk of being hit? This is how we would think through the lawsuit. And we can even take it a step forward to try to apply some of the other principles we've talked about in the past. We're talking about Augusta National because they're the premise and facility, but what about the golfer? If Tiger Woods hits the golf shot and it hits me, 
can I sue Tiger Woods for hitting me with a golf ball? What if we change up the circumstances entirely and instead of talking about being at the Masters, what if I'm at my local golf club? What if I'm a member of a golf club and another individual hits an errant tee shot and strikes a person in the head? Can the person who hit the ball be found guilty of negligence? Can the owner and operator of the golf club, your golf club, can they be sued for negligence for failing to protect you? Well, all of these questions can be answered by, again, going back and diving into the case law. And one of the quintessential cases dealing with golf is Duffy versus Midlothian Country Club. This is a 1985 case that was filed in Illinois that gets all the way up to the Illinois Court of Appeals. Just like with everything we're talking about this week, the plaintiff, Duffy, files for negligence. Now, originally, the club won a summary judgment based off of the assumption of risk doctrine. However, in the appeals court, they ruled for Duffy, and they awarded Duffy $448,380. So the club is now appealing this all the way up to the Court of Appeals. Let's look at the facts that brought this to court. So Duffy went to watch a tournament with multiple people, including her son. While she was at the tournament, she stayed inside the roped-off area. So she was in the area where spectators are allowed to be. If you've ever been to a golf tournament, to signify where players are to go and where fans are to go, they provide rope that designates where the fans have to stay behind. And we call it a roped-off area because there's an area around one fairway that might be roped and another one, and you travel in between. While she was in that rope off area. She went to the first tee, saw them hit drives, go in the fairway, then went to get food at the first tent. Didn't find anything that she liked there, so she went to the second tent, got some food. While she was standing there, she was eating her food, talking with some of the people that she had come with. When someone hits an errant tee shot, traveling over to where she is, striking Duffy in the eye with the ball. As a result of being struck in the eye, she completely lost her vision. So what does she do? She sues. And she claims that the defendant breached their duty. She claims that they breached the duty in three different ways. First, she claims that they breached their duty because they did not give a proper warning of the ball traveling into that area. If you're a fan of golf, you know that if you hit an errant ball, you're supposed to yell four. Why do you yell four? Yelling four signifies or warns the other people who might be in jeopardy of being hit by that ball of a risk. They can then move out of the way or duck in cover to try to protect themselves. So Duffy argues that the defendant breached their duty because they did not properly warn her by yelling for. She argued that they failed to warn that she was standing in a dangerous area. And also, not only that they failed to warn her that she was standing in a dangerous area, she said that they didn't provide any protected area. And so they failed to provide a safe environment. And if we go back to what we've talked about, some of these claims make sense because we know that you have a duty to protect of any type of known risk. In golf, it's known that golf balls can be hit errantly and you could be struck by them. So in the court, in assessing the claims that Duffy's making, the judge first has to take into consideration, what does Duffy know about the sport of golf? Because as is the case with hockey and as was the case with baseball, it was an important aspect that it was known that a puck or a ball can leave the playing area and go into the stands. In baseball, we said it's America's pastime, so you have to know it. In hockey, the judge established and said, look, it's just as common in hockey that a puck leaves as it is in baseball, so you should know it. Golf's a little bit different, though. They look at Duffy and they assess, well, what's her knowledge base? And they decided that she actually didn't know much about golf. And as a result of not knowing much, it becomes the duty and responsibility of the golf club 
to warn her of the risks that are involved in the activity, to warn her of the risk of coming into the park. If you go to a baseball game, baseball stadiums warn you of the risk of sitting in the stands. Now, they say it's an inherent part of the game, so you should know it, but they still warn you about it. Read the back of a ticket stub. It warns you of it. They'll make announcements to warn you of it. As we saw with the Columbus Blue Jackets, the NHL has a policy where the ushers actually hold up signs that warn you that you cannot be moving around because it's too dangerous right now. Well, in golf, in this particular instance, the court said Middle Lothian Country Club never warned her. They didn't tell her of the inherent risk. And since she had never been, she didn't know of them. If you don't know of the risk, you can't assume those risks. They further went on to assess the specific setup of the club. And to set up a food tent in an area where it was very common for a errant shot to go created a course or create an environment that was not safe. Since Duffy didn't have knowledge of the risks, and since they set up an environment that in and of itself increased the risk of her being hit, the Court of Appeals upheld and affirmed the previous court's decision that Duffy should get over $400,000. The important part of this decision is the fact that we don't treat golf the same as we treat baseball and hockey. We treat it differently. The risk of being hit by a golf ball is not an inherent part of being a fan. And just by going to an event, you aren't guaranteeing that that individual has knowledge of that. So we have to warn those individuals of the potential. We also, when Aaron shots hit, have to warn them through the yelling of four. And from a premise standpoint, this is saying that we can look and examine how the premise was set up to determine if it was set up in a safe way or not. With hockey or with baseball, we look at the netting to see how the netting was set up. And if it's protected the most dangerous areas, then we're okay. In golf, it's saying we want to make sure that we don't set up golf courses or tournaments in a way that will encourage people to congregate in an area where they're going to be talking and not paying attention to what occurs and have that area be an area where it is very common for an errant ball to go. Duffy establishes a key legal precedent here when noting that. But as I said, what if we're not at a tournament? What if we're just at our local golf club playing a normal round of 18 and someone happens to get struck? In that case, the Duffy decision isn't going to apply because the Duffy is dealing specifically with a golf tournament. However, Hathaway versus Tassacosa Country Club, that's going to apply to that situation. So in this situation, again, we have a golf incident. This one happened in 1993. It's in the state of Texas, and it gets all the way up to the Court of Appeals. Hathaway is the plaintiff. Tassacosa Country Club is the defendant. The trial court initially enters a summary judgment for Tassacosa Country Club and an individual named Barfield. Barfield becomes an important part of this because Barfield is the one that actually hits the golf ball. So here are the key facts. Holloway was playing at the Tessacosa Golf Club. Uh, he was a member there. And as a member, he was an invitee. And he was on the ninth hole. While he's playing the ninth hole, another club member, who was a paid member, was Barfield. And he was on the driving range. And Barfield is known for hitting a slice. If you're a right-handed hitter, a slice would be when you strike a ball, it goes very, very far to the right. So he's known for hitting that, and he's setting up in the driving range. And to compensate for the fact that he hits the ball very far to the right, he's set up on the extreme left side of the driving range. So that way, if he hits that slice, he's going to hit it still in the driving range and not risk anyone else. Now, in this case, this country club was set up so that the driving range was right next to the ninth hole. Barfield's over there hitting his slices, and all of a sudden he swings and hits one, and he hits an extreme hook. 
hook for a right-handed player is a ball that's going to go to the left very far. The problem is, to the left of the driving range is the ninth fairway. Barfield hits an uncharacteristic hook, and as the ball leaves the driving range area, which the court had decided was fairly common, both Barfield and Hathaway said that they had seen balls from the driving range oftentimes over around the ninth hole. As Barfield hits that hook, just so happens that Hathaway is driving in his cart, turning a corner on the ninth hole. Hathaway is struck by the ball directly in his left eye. Right before the ball hits Hathaway, Barfield does yell four to issue a warning of the incoming ball. However, it was too late for Hathaway to get out of the way of it, and so he was still struck. He ends up permanently losing his vision in his left eye, and Hathaway files a lawsuit suing both Barfield and suing the country club that they were playing at. The initial trial court issues a summary judgment for Barfield saying that he did not breach any duty, that he had played by the safety rules, that he had tried to take normal precautions by setting up where he did, um, that he had yelled for to try to give proper warning and play by the safety rules of the game, which is what participant-participant liability dictates. Hathaway acknowledges and accepts that, but he still continues to try to appeal the decision to issue a summary judgment for the country club. Because his argument is the country club was not set up in a safe manner. Very similar to the argument that we saw with Duffy. When Duffy claimed that the country club was set up in a way that brought about an increased risk to her from being hit. Hathaway is making the same argument with the location of the driving range to the ninth tee. The question that the court is then asked to consider is, well, what are the risks Hathaway is assuming by playing golf? Just like we talked about with Duffy, the difference here is that Hathaway was a member at this club, had played that course before, and acknowledged that he knew of the possibility of a ball from the driving range ending up at the ninth tee. In this decision, the court starts by defining the duty of care that is owed to Hathaway, to the plaintiff. With Barfield, they said that Barfield owes a duty of ordinary negligence. In other words, as long as Barfield isn't acting in a reckless or intentional way and playing by the rules of the sport, as I defined, then Barfield isn't breaching his duty. Now, Barfield had set up and intentionally tried to hit the ball onto the ninth hole while Hathaway was playing it. Now he's breached his duty because he's doing something intentionally that increases the risk of the activity. But he isn't doing something intentionally, and he called four. So they very clearly have acknowledged that Barfield did not breach his duty. With Tessacosa, though, they looked at the duty that they owe, and they found something a little bit different. They say Tuscaloosa owes a duty to know and fix or warn of reasons for danger, or fix or warn any risk that are foreseen. The question that is asked then is, since they are in charge of the setup of the golf course, and since they knew that it was possible that golf balls could be hit over there, did they fulfill their duty in fixing a known risk? The trial court ruled in a summary judgment that that was a question that they could rule on. In other words, the trial court said that, well, that's a question of the application of law, and so that's not for a jury to decide. The appeals court disagreed. The appeals court said, no, 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 no. The court doesn't get to decide 
whether they fixed or warned of the danger, that's a matter for the jury to decide. Why? Because we're asking basically, did they breach their duty? We know that they had a duty, you established that, but it's up to the jury to decide whether they breached the duty. And the trial court hadn't allowed that. So they end up reversing and remanding, sending it back to lower court, establishing that it is up to a jury now to decide whether that duty was broken or not. But that fact aside, the key thing that comes out from this is something that the judge says. In the court case, the judge rules that a possessor of land is subject to liability for physical harm caused by his invitees by a condition on the land if and only if he, one, knows or by the exercise of reasonable care would discover the condition and should realize that it involves an unreasonable risk of harm to such invitees, and two, should expect that they will not discover or realize the danger or will fail to protect themselves against it, and three, fails to exercise reasonable care to protect them against the danger. What the court is saying is that the club is vicariously liable for the harm that one participant causes to another. We've talked about this before, but they're only liable if the club failed to protect the individual who was harmed from a risk that they knew about, or if they failed to warn them of that risk. And in this case, there's a big question of if they did that or not. They knew of the risk. The golfer knew of the risk, so he does assume it to an extent. But notice that the judge says that you are still liable if you should expect that they, meaning the invitee to the land, should expect that they will not discover or realize the danger or will fail to protect themselves against it. In other words, yes, they knew of that risk. They acknowledged that they saw balls there, but it's not common that they would protect themselves against it. How would you protect yourself from the risk of a ball coming over from the driving range into the ninth fairway? There's really no way you can protect yourself besides looking right before, but balls travel so fast that you can look and still have that risk of the ball hitting you come about. This lawsuit's important because it does establish, first off, that the golfer is not legally liable as long as they didn't do it on purpose, as long as they weren't reckless in what they were doing and striking the ball, and as long as they didn't intentionally strike a ball towards them. The second important thing that comes from this is even if I'm even if I have knowledge of the game of golf, if the course is set up in a way that provides greater amount of risk than can normally be expected to the individuals who are playing golf, then the course can be held liable for increasing that risk. And in this particular case, the course was set up so that the driving range and the ninth hole were too close to each other, thus increasing the risk of someone on the ninth hole being struck by an errant shot from the driving range. So if we go back to the initial questions that we asked with the Masters, if a fan is struck by a golf ball at the Masters, can the fan win a lawsuit against Augusta National for negligence? Potentially. We would have to look at the situation. An errant tee shot goes five yards off the fairway and hits a fan in the head. That's probably not an errant design. In order for Augusta National to be held liable, you would have to make the claim and prove that the course was set up in a way that increased the opportunity or increased the risk to fans. You would then have to also show that Augusta National failed to warn fans of that risk, and you would have to show the fan had limited knowledge of the risk, therefore they could not assume the risk of the activity. At Augusta National, it's going to be pretty hard to prove because at a Masters, the people that are attending, getting tickets is so difficult that they're probably going to have knowledge and be fans of the game. And I have never heard anything about the setup of Augusta that creates an increased amount of risk for patrons that are there. 
The second question, could they sue a golfer that hit the shot? Well, they could, but winning that lawsuit's gonna be almost impossible. You'd have to show the golfer was doing something reckless or trying to intentionally hit the ball into the fans. And that's gonna be very hard to prove, especially at a Masters event. Finally, the last question I asked was, what if we change up the circumstances? What if you're at your local club and you hit an errant shot and it goes to another fairway and hits someone? Again, as long as you are not acting recklessly, you are not going to be held liable in that lawsuit. The club itself, though, could be if they design the course in a way that increases the risk to the person who was hit. One of the last sports that I want to finish talking about is one that we don't really talk a lot about in sports law, but this is one where the danger of an object leaving the playing area and traveling into the stands and creating injury is maybe the greatest. And that's the sport of auto racing. So if any of you are big NASCAR fans, you know that getting in wrecks is fairly common, but also not just wrecks, you're moving at such speed and cars hit at such high speeds that they oftentimes break apart. And it's not uncommon for that thing to go up towards the fans. With auto racing, we have to think of even though wrecks and wreckage flying into the stands is foreseeable, it doesn't just mean that the facility isn't liable. Just like golf, it is foreseeable, but we have to look at the totality of the event and what occurs to determine if the stadium is going to be held liable. And we're not going to get in depth into these court cases, but there are two court cases which helps establish some case law here. We have Capital Raceway Promotions Inc. versus Smith. This one established that the operator of the facility is liable for injuries that are sustained to patrons, to invitees, when wreckage does go into the stands if there's not sufficient netting or protection provided. So notice NASCAR, they don't just have a ring defining or boards defining where the track is. They extend that up with mesh wiring, just like we see in baseball, just like we see in hockey, though this is going to be obviously substantially stronger. If we just remove that netting, we don't have that there at all, then we could be held liable. So we do, again, need to provide sufficient netting, and the Capital Raceway lawsuit establishes that. There's another one, Richu versus Herbert, established that there's a duty to regularly inspect that netting. Because what we had in this lawsuit was we had a case where there was a wreck. They had netting up or protective barrier up. The car went up against that and pieces of the car actually broke down that barrier and those pieces of the car still continued into the fans causing serious injury. And what they established there is that that netting wasn't regularly inspected, that it was in fact defective. And the fact that it was defective led to it breaking away and, and injuries being caused. So remember, when we talked about duties of facility owners and possessors, it's not just to protect. We have to reasonably inspect the facility, just as we established with the Grant versus Wakeda campground lawsuit. They had a duty to inspect the facility. The same duty exists within auto racing because just having the netting up or protected barrier up isn't enough. You have to inspect it to make sure it's going to do its job of protecting the fans. And that's what the Herbert lawsuit established within auto racing as well. Now, that's not the end of all sports where things can happen, where things can go into the stands. We can talk about wrestling and fighting. I mean, things like the WWE, oftentimes fighters will leave the fighting area, will leave the ring, and they might go towards the stands or even into the stands. This is similar to other sports. We said basketball, you can have players diving into the stands to try to save a ball. In the Malice in the Palace, Ron Artest willfully went up into the stands and left the playing area to fight. 
So the question becomes, well, what's the liability of the facility owner or possessor in those circumstances? We see the same basic principles apply. We have to protect fans from objects leaving the field to make sure that they are secure and safe. We also have to warn them of those potential hazards. We could talk about this in other sports as well. Tennis, you could have a tennis ball hit into the stands or maybe a racket slip and hit someone. Football, field goal could go through the upright. We have instances in America where you have in Lambeau Field, fans go and jump into the stands, what we call the Lambeau Leap. They're leaving the playing field, jumping in the stands as a form of celebration. But what if they jump into someone and it causes injury? What's the liability there? Basketball, balls might get tossed into the stands. Players might spill over into the stands. There's very limited case law, though, when we talk about wrestling. There's limited case law with tennis, football, and basketball to know exactly what the assumption of risk is, is for the fans. Because one thing hopefully you've been able to learn from this conversation today is not only what the duties are. More specifically, you have that duty to keep the premise safe, to inspect it, to discover any type of dangers or damages that might have occurred to that property and then remove or repair those dangers. Not only have we learned that and talked about how those can be applied within these sports settings, but we've also learned a little bit about the idea of assumption of risk. We haven't named it specifically or defined it specifically, but we've talked about it within each of these lawsuits. We've asked, well, what are the risks that are assumed by the plaintiff in participating in the activity as a fan or as a camper? And what we've established is that the risk for going and attending a sporting event is not a uniform risk across all sporting events. Baseball is treated different. As the limited duty rule states, baseball is America's pastime, so we have to treat it as such, meaning we treat it that everyone knows the inherent risk of the activity. The courts have taken that limited duty rule and transferred it over to hockey as well. And we looked at two court rulings which reaffirmed that. In both of those cases, we treat the idea of assumption of risk a little bit different than we do in the case of a golf. In the golfer cases we looked at, it depends on the person. It depends on what their knowledge base is. We don't apply a uniform standard to all golfers, as we saw in the Duffy case, where they acknowledged she didn't know much about golf and therefore cannot assume the risk. Similarly, with other sports, we would have to look at how the court ruled on each of those individual sports to determine what risks are assumed by participants going and attending those events. Hopefully this conversation today has helped you understand those principles of duties that are owed by facility owners and premise operators. Hopefully it's also helped you understand this idea of assumption of risk a bit more. As always, if you have any questions, please follow us on Instagram at The Sport Professor. Feel free to shoot us a message letting us know if you have any questions about premise liability. If you have any ideas for topics, please also feel free to reach out. Until next time, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.